This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You might be very happy with your drinking half a bottle of wine a night right now and you're doing just fine, still getting paid, doing well in your job, good relationship with your family, all that stuff. That doesn't mean that you haven't increased your risk of something 20 years down the line. And again, that goes back to all the stuff we've talked about already, sort of short-term benefit in exchange for long-term potential harm. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please, sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest and returning to the podcast is my friend, Dr. Tommy Wood. Tommy is a neuroscientist who has coached world-class athletes in a dozen sports. He received his undergraduate degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge and his medical degree from the University of Oxford, and he also has his PhD in physiology and neuroscience. Tommy is currently a research assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington, where his research interests include identifying modifiable factors that contribute to brain health and cognitive function across the lifespan and more. Today on the show, Tommy shares his thoughts on some highly popular and often debated topics such as alcohol, weed, caffeine, and vaping. Much of what he has to say may or may not surprise you, so I encourage you to listen to this episode until the very end with a very open mind. So with that said, let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Tommy Wood back to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Tommy, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks uh, for having me back. It's really nice to be here. Likewise. And and as you know, I recently did an eight-part series on cannabis. And you gave me some guidance on it, I know. And my overall takeaway was that, you know, weed isn't this magic mental health fix that a lot of people will say that it is, and that there isn't any research to really suggest that it can be beneficial for your mental health. I'd love to know from your perspective as somebody who's a neuroscientist and studies the brain, what's your overall take on weed and how it impacts mental health? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll say up front that. This is not my personal area of expertise, but I've obviously read some some literature um, uh, over the years and have studied some of the cannabinoids in the lab. So I think if we talk about individual compounds, there's certainly some interesting stuff that that, that could come out. But uh, broadly, um, when you look at epidemiological studies on, say, traditional weed smoking, uh, be that either leaf or or hash. Um, the the relationship with with mental health is certainly doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to be good and doesn't support an idea that it's beneficial for our mental health. I'm sure that like some light recreational use is unlikely to be significantly harmful, but you know chronic high use seems to be associated with changes in cognitive function, uh, increased risk of certain mental health conditions. There was a a very interesting study where they looked at Swedish uh, conscripts, you know, decades ago and looked at their weed use and then looked at their long-term mental health risks. And it was, seemed to be associated with increased risks of schizophrenia. That's the one that 
seems to pop up the most. Of course, there's 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 like some bi-directional stuff, like um, people who are already predisposed to mental health conditions may be more likely to use weed or smoke weed, or I guess you can edibles as well. That's certainly the case in some other arenas where I've seen some of the research, like in those with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, opioid use disorder, say traumatic brain injuries, things like that. Uh, often people struggle with various mental health conditions because of an injury or something else, and they feel that they can get some uh, benefit or relief by self-medicating. But you know, it's unlikely there's a, a real sort of benefit there. But you may, you know, some of that dissociation may may be helpful, particularly when, if you have a lot of in, intrusive thoughts or or other issues. So there there is a bi-directional nature to it um, in terms of who maybe is that kind of user. But broadly, there doesn't seem to be any benefit, and and probably with with large long-term use there is significant harm and some of the some of the clients that i've worked with uh, who've who've struggled with certain cognitive functions have had histories of of long-term uh weed use or you know, like vaping now and it's impossible to figure out that that's exactly what caused it but certainly would be a, a big red flag in the setting of somebody with with mood changes or cognitive function changes and the main compound in weed that destroys people's brains from what I understand is THC. I, I gather that there's some correlation between somebody's cognitive ability and their mental health. Like when people feel off, they can't remember things, they're not able to focus and do a lot of the things that they were used to doing, that it's going to impact them mentally. Like based on maybe your experience or the research you have read about certain compounds like THC, like what does it do to the brain like cognitively? Like why does it impact the brain in such a negative way when it when it comes to cognitive function. Yeah, again, that's 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 not really my my personal area of expertise. So I wouldn't uh, you know the mecha- the mechanisms of that. And you and I have talked uh, offline about our sort of desire to really know these mechanisms. And, and in in reality, probably a lot of it is still is still not understood. And we can we can have these theories about what happens. And right, the brain has its own uh cannabinoid endocannabinoid signaling system which is obviously being interfered with the thc is the main psychoactive cannabinoid or compound uh that you get from cannabis uh though there are a bunch that are non-psychoactive that inter- that uh, interact with that system potentially in 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 beneficial ways but certainly as much as you can study it um epidemiologically um it those those effects do seem to be apparent and you're right that in general those kind of you know, cognitive functions and overall mental health seem to be generally related to one another because you know the people who have uh, significant mental health disorders also have disturbed cognition and what's chicken and egg uh, or both happening at the same time. You know, hard to unpick, but certainly they they do seem to to come together frequently. So I guess you you know you're somebody that consumes a lot of content online. Why do you think that despite some of the stuff that we're talking about now? And some of the stuff that I've learned just through the series and what a lot of the research suggests as far as that, you know, weed is worse than people think. Like, why is the a lot of the narrative online that people are finding so many valuable benefits from it if research says the complete opposite? Well, we, we all like our vices, right? And and this is and what what's really interesting is that I'm not sure anybody well, very few people can have a truly unbiased discussion about this stuff because, and it, you know, it would be the same if we're talking about nicotine, alcohol, caffeine, probably those people who've managed to 
build it into part you know, as part of their lifestyle and are still functioning at a very high level will then say, well, look at me. I still smoke X number of joints and I do just fine. I have my graduate degrees. I'm a physician, I'm whatever. Um, and it'd be the same for uh, alcohol intake and, and other things. I, I would say the same thing for, for caffeine, although I believe that in general, my intake is probably is net associated with benefit. But if somebody tries to tell me that that caffeine is detrimental for whatever health thing, I'm going to push back just because I like coffee. Um, and, and so this is a this is a big part of it. The, the other part of it is that for some people, like I said, and where I've seen some of this come up is in say uh, individuals with with uh, previous brain injury who have disordered um, mental health and or cognitive issues that stem from that, and they feel like they get some relief from this and you know maybe maybe some other things as well but what is sort of relief that that gets rid of some of these you know could be in, intrusive thought patterns or or issues with cognitive function or issues with sleep um and you get this subjective improvement in sleep it may not actually be improving sleep and alcohol is very much the same right you you are unconscious faster but that doesn't mean that it's good for your for your sleep um and so i, I think a lot of it is subjective benefit but then when you and just like you know people talk about alcohol to unwind or you know I've, I've i've had people message me and say you know i've had these traumatic experiences and alcohol is the only thing that like helps me get through the day and right that's absolutely the the scope for a therapist or psychologist you know well beyond my my uh, my personal experience or expertise but people are getting this subjective relief and so some of it again is what are the things that predispose to the use of these various compounds yeah, but there's there's often a difference between that subjective experience and some, you know, objective measurement of of long term risk, say, which are not necessarily the same thing. Do you know anything about how THC and CBD interact? Because I've heard, like, one of the things that I heard is that one of the main reasons that weed is now so much more dangerous today is because the THC content is significantly higher, and the CBD to THC ratio is lower, and that CBD. I think it w is used to offset some of the negative side effects from THC. And now that THC content is much higher, that the CBD isn't really helping to offset anything. Do you know anything about the, the interaction between those two? Well, I know that to the first point that, that certainly there are certain cultivating process, uh, processes that have tried to maximize the amount of THC in a, in a given amount of, of, of cannabis. And... But, but what I also know is that, you know, people talk about these different strains having these different compounds. And when people have looked at that, there's actually it's actually way more variable than you think. So, yes, I think overall THC content has increased over time, but it's it's not as specific or as general as as people say. Like, I again, if you go to sort of the, the subjective cannabis use literature, people will say, well, I use this strain and this strain makes me feel this way and this strain makes me feel this way. And there's some hypothesis that it's to do with the different balance of the different compounds. But when people have looked at that, that's probably not true. A lot of that is driven by, by placebo effect. <laughs> Where I do know some of the literature is related to the use of purified CBD and THC in, in combination. One of the first sort of FDA or medically approved uses of cannabinoids was in Sativex, which is a, a pain medication that was used particularly for things like multiple sclerosis. And in multiple sclerosis, they saw that, um, you know, particularly improvements in sleep 
and some improvements in pain. And it was like both of those compounds uh, were important together. And there were some ideas that uh, CBD affects sort of the the handling or recycling of a THC, but then it also has uh, its own actions in its own right. Some of which may be, you know, anti-inflammatory or or, or related to, to to things like that. And when you look at other sleep studies, at least high dose CBD on its own doesn't seem to support sleep, um, but in combination with THC together, they may improve they may improve sleep in certain conditions. So this is mainly done in pathological conditions like in multiple sclerosis. This hasn't been, really been done in like healthy people or athletes or something like that. Even though CBD is kind of sold as this recovery compound, there isn't really much evidence if any, to, to, to support that in that context. So certainly they, they do interact. Um, and then depend, but depending on who you are, that may be negative or, or beneficial to, depending on the context. Yeah. And I think what you just said, I think people will tease that out and they'll say, oh, for CBD to have its full effects, it has to be, there has to be, you know, trace amounts or some amounts of THC, which is still like, I think that's still considered legal because it's classified as hemp and not as marijuana i believe less than 0.3 percent thc i think yeah and so people will hear that and, and it's like and you see this in the nutrition space which is kind of why i want to talk to you about this because there's a lot of people that'll say like okay like sugar you know somebody if you give rats like a bunch of sugar that sugar now is going to destroy your life and destroy your brain right when really they're just they're taking a mechanism and they're saying okay like i see that it did that to that and so that means that it's poison for everybody right and the same thing with the thc where it's like oh see you're you're saying that in order for this compound to interact, it needs this. This must be beneficial. And it's like, well, no. I mean, it's like point. It's minimal, right? And and a lot of the weed now, it's got like, I forget the exact number, but it's like, you know, fifteen, twenty percent, or something like that, at least of THC in it. And it's just completely destroying people's mental health. I mean, I. It's just. It's sad to see what it's what it's doing to people. Taking this question to the next level, from a cognitive standpoint. If somebody's listening to this and they're like, you know what, like I feel like I have been, you know, overusing, overusing marijuana, you know, eating too many edibles, smoking too much weed, however they, you know, they, they talk about it. And I feel cognitively off. Like, what are some things that somebody could do if they want to improve their cognitive function and get it back to baseline? That becomes a like a, a whole other question. And 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 clearly if you think that, you know, some some habit and we could we so we can we can expand it out from just using just using cannabis right if you think that some habit is negatively affecting your cognitive function the first step would be to find some way to decrease that uh, and or eliminate it and often that requires you know that may require therapy it may require pharmacological intervention you know uh, intervention from a physician something like that like that's a possibility but Sometimes you can all, you can also just think about like why why am I doing this like what is the perceived benefit that I'm getting so often it's say relaxation or quote unquote de-stressing or you know things in that in that arena um, you're trying to feel more relaxed so then you can think about like what other things can I do to try and achieve that same effect um, so I still have this and you know it becomes a often becomes a ritual like there's this sort of like this this part of what I do and then. I do this thing and then I and then I feel this and you know I enjoy that feeling. So what other things can you do um instead of that? And I think, you know, questions around alcohol certainly very certainly very similar. Um so identify what it is that you get out of it 
And is there some way to replace that with a new habit or ritual where you still get get some of those benefits? Because if you don't, then you, you may not be able to decrease use. Then, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the fact that the brain is very adaptable and can increase function pretty much any time um, in your life, as long as you provide the environment and the tools to do that. You would probably think about some some uh, diet related stuff, so nutrition, sleep, physical activity, um, other aspects of uh, stress resilience or distress tolerance, right? If, particularly if you're using these kinds of things for for stress mitigation, um, and then you know social connection and and some other things. How you stimulate and use your brain. Usually, I would say that if there's some specific function that your brain isn't uh, performing as well as you'd like it to, right? That's where you could focus because we know that the brain has task specificity, which means that if you train it in a, in a certain task, it will get better at that task. So, you know, if you're struggling with short-term memory or working memory, there are, you can, you can work that. Or if you're struggling with, with some, some other things, you know, decision-making or focus, right? Th- those are, those are trainable things as long as you're then decreasing aspects or removing aspects that inhibit uh, that process, which smoking, alcohol, various other things um, can, can also interfere with. So that's kind of like in that setting, that would be my, my, my two-step process. You hear a lot about marijuana-induced psychosis now, where specifically in kids, where kids are using an excessive amount of, of weed and it's changing the brain in a way where it's causing psychosis, symptoms of schizophrenia, et cetera. When you were going through medical school and stuff, was this something that you heard a lot about or has it just gotten, have you heard just, has it gotten that much worse over the years? That's a good question. Um, often with these things, we hear more about them just because more of a light is being shone on them rather than because anything's really changed um, over time. I'll admit that I don't think I learned anything about cannabis really at all in medical school as far as 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 far as far as i remember there's certainly been more interest generated in in this and i think some of it is historical and, and certainly dovetails into other sort of renaissances into interest in illicit substance what are currently illicit substances uh that may have therapeutic benefit and you know that is the case for certain certain cannabinoids as well whereas for a long period of time right these things were banned it was just like we don't talk about them we try and get rid of them as much as we can you know quote unquote the war on drugs which just obviously hasn't worked it didn't work and so now people are starting to appreciate you know context specific utility of of a range of compounds and this is the same for the psychedelics ketamine mdma you know all of these things are now coming into the mental health arena as tools that physicians can use as part of therapy in particular. And there does seem to be significant promise and, and, and benefit there. So I think part of it is, as a research community, we've shifted how we think about these things rather than just assuming they're all bad and, you know, just don't talk about it. Um, it just get rid of it. And then we never have to think about it. We've sort of realized that that's maybe not the best approach. And, you know, in um, societies that are struggling with a lot of chronic disease, both physical and mental, right? You you want to make sure you have every possible tool in your toolbox, and and some of these things are going to be helpful as well. It's it's really interesting how the pendulum has shifted completely. Where you went from this this drug being completely stigmatized and thought of as this the devil, right? Like back in the day when I was growing up, like to now 
you're seeing the kind of the opposite, at least online from from people saying, you know what, it's so beneficial. It's helped me do this. It's helped me save my life. I mean, I during this series, the comments from people uh, and in response to the episodes, like it was wild to see some of the stuff they were saying. And, you know, I never want to shame anybody for what they're how they're living their life. The goal is to just bring the correct information to the best of my ability so that people can make their own informed decisions in the best way that they possibly can. And so I'm glad that we're, we're, we're touching on, on this stuff. I, and I think that we're in this, in this world where specifically with substances that people will say, Oh, it's legal. It must be healthy. You can say that about you know, cigarettes, alcohol, vaping, you know, you know, uh, weed in certain States, right? They're like, Oh, it's legal. It must be healthy. And it's like those two things are not directly correlated. So do you think it's time that we that people stop associating something being legal with it being healthy? Yeah, probably. A lot of these things are historical, right? And depending on how you quantify, say, these exogenous substances that, that we choose to put in our bodies for various reasons, um, certainly a lot more damage is done by um, alcohol and, and smoking than than we that's often a, that's often something that you know sort of at least in the ways that we measure it they're kind of like well it's much safer than alcohol because look at all these people who become alcoholics and 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 have issues with that so yeah i think that just because something is legal doesn't doesn't mean it's, it's healthy and you know i think the the opposite is potentially true as well like i said in certain contexts some of these things can can certainly be be beneficial i i suddenly had this random thought about this interesting study that kind of relates to some of the stuff we we're talking about with um where they took people, um, and I can't—I I honestly can't remember how they how they exposed them to it, but they essentially exposed them to to cannabis, and then they looked at uh, some tests of creativity, which is usually to do with um, coming up with ideas, or you know, like here's a here's a spoon, like draw as many pictures as you can of like a spoon in a novel context, or like do something right, and. And th- this is actually the, the the case for for a number of things. It's the same with with uh, caffeine as well, which is that um, so people who who um, then were exposed to to weed, and again, I can't remember exactly how it was delivered. They felt more creative, but then when you objectively scored their creativity, they were not more creative, um, and actually they were maybe even less creative in some contexts. And it's the same with caffeine. With with caffeine, you often feel more alert and you have like you improve your reaction time and mood improves but actually your cognitive function does not improve and for complex tasks with particularly with higher doses of caffeine your cognitive function particularly complex cognitive functions get worse so often with a lot of these things and i'm trying to draw broad you know rather than just like focusing in on one i can sort of draw broad these broad associations is often these things that we we take or we consume we feel one thing but when you objectively measure it, it's not true. So there's this dissociation between what we're feeling and what's and what's actually happening. And that that certainly seems to be the case for some of these things. But then that's also why you get such heated comments, right? People like their vices, they feel they're getting benefit from it. And you know, it's it's really difficult to have that conversation, right? I have my own biases against all these things, and it's really hard to unpick that from what you can can sort of really meaningfully determine from the research. It's interesting you say that because I feel like the same kind of thing happened with weed and mental health where people will say the same thing like, you know, weed anecdotally helps my mental health, helps my anxiety, helps my anxiety, helps my sleep. But then there's research that shows that it's complete opposite. You know, when you, when you take a step back, it's like, well, it doesn't. It actually is worse than you think for your mental health. And 
I forget the study, but I know there, I think there was a study where they gave, I think they gave healthy people some form of, of uh, cannabis and it showed that they, they did have, could have symptoms of um, psychosis, I believe, or imp- increased their risk of psychosis, I think, or something like that. So it's, so it's super interesting. I mean, do you think that it, it's because of the interaction with like dopamine and people get this euphoric feeling when they're doing substances like that and it makes them feel better? And in, in, in the moment, and they think, okay, like I must feel better about myself in the moment. So this must mean this thing's a miracle drug. I'm going to not try and tie it down to a specific neurotransmitter because I think that's something we do too much of in the face of not actually knowing. Um, everybody wants to, right? Everybody wants to talk about dopamine, but do we actually know what dopamine is doing and where? I would argue that for most for most cases, we don't actually know that. So I'll, I'll avoid draw, drawing that sort of line between those things, but. Um, you're right. I, I think that's what all of this boils down to, as, as we've kind of said, which is this subjective beneficial feeling, whatever it is that you're trying to to use it for, you feel like you're getting that benefit. Um, but, you know, as humans, we're very bad at thinking about long term consequences. If for, for, for right, in, in, instead of short term benefit, right? this idea of hyperbolic discounting, where it's sort of like the we're more likely to take a, a small short-term gain, what we feel as a gain, rather than prolong things for, for, a, for a, long-term, a long-term greater benefit. So that's kind of part of how human brains and psychology just, just works. Uh, but that, that's where it's coming from. You're doing this because you are receiving some kind of benefit in the short term, um, be it um, real or imagined, or at least you know, subjectively experienced. Um, but then it's very difficult to really objectively separate those things out from like, what, what's the benefit I'm getting right now versus what are the long-term risks? You're more likely to um, assume or double down the idea that because you're getting some benefit now, you know, that it's not going to be harmful long-term um, or, you know, some people just don't even care about the future, right? They're just thinking about right now. And, you know, that's that comes down to some other aspects of personality as well. I want to talk about, something that is also very legal right now and that a lot of people are consuming and we haven't really seen a lot of evidence at least yet i don't think that of what it can actually do to our brains and that's vaping i mean you're seeing so many people do it and their rationale is well i'm not doing harder substances or i'm not smoking it's better for my lungs do you have any insights or thoughts on being in and what the potential dangers are that people might not be aware of yeah this is a big so particularly in the sort of nicotine focused research community there's this big back and forth between people who you know who say well we can't really throw too much shade at vaping because at least when people are vaping they're not smoking and you know therefore there's there's net there's net benefit there and that's that's in the research community whereas others have genuine concerns about about the, the impact of, of of vaping itself, and I think in both cases we can probably remove nicotine from the equation because um, actually even in some settings there's some there's some interesting um, things about nicotine and cognitive function. It may in, in some contexts be be beneficial. Um, so most of the downsides of smoking, and uh, I'm not suggesting everybody go out and pick up a nicotine habit, but the the real major downsides are related to the, the the vehicle in which the nicotine is being delivered 
right? So either smoking or vaping. I'm uh, taking on questions in areas that are not my my expertise, but I do work with at least one person who's very steeped in in the research on smoking versus vaping, and this is particularly in in pregnant women and the effects on the developing brain and the developing lungs. Um, and it seems that a lot of the carriers or flavorings, uh, you know, the sort of the excipients and solvents that are used in vape products may be detrimental in their own right. Whether that makes them better or worse than smoking, you know, I think that's that's sort of up in the air. But it, they don't; they certainly don't seem to be harmless. And a lot of ongoing research in terms of how those, you know, th- there was that uh, a few years ago, there was this big increase, or at least several notable cases of people who had sort of acute lung injury, probably from one of the, uh, I think it was a, it was a form of vitamin E that was used in the in the vape liquid. In reality, there are so many things that go into that that we just don't even understand the effects of. So I think people are raising concern legitimately, um, but how that all pans out in terms of what it's doing to the brain, what it's doing to the lungs, whether that's more or less bad than smoking, you know, re- really difficult to, to to answer right now. But certainly, I know I know lots of people are, are actively looking into it because they because they do have some concerns about that. I know a lot of what you talk about in your work is is habits right and like how to develop healthy ones to protect your brain and to help reduce the speed of cognitive decline etc and the way i view vaping as somebody who's been in recovery for over 15 years i don't see it being used as in a healthy way like i'm not seeing somebody say hey i'm gonna go vape and then i'm gonna go focus on taking a test i see people as it's just a bad habit and they almost can't live their life without vaping they're carrying their vape pens with them, you know, to school. They got it, on, you know, next on their nightstand next to the, when they sleep. They're doing it first thing in the morning. And so I don't, I, I guess, and this is just maybe I, I have my own biases too, just like you have, where I'm like in the recovery, you know, addict world. So when you, when you look at stuff like that, do you think that that is a good like metric to look at as far as whether something is, good for you or bad for you is is how you're how you're using it i I do i do i do see you mean it's it's very difficult to to really to really pass that out i think if you know in general if we think about the things that really seem to to benefit us they're often things that on their own and you know in isolation are, are hard to do and difficult for relatively short periods of time so i think you know, exercise and you know very maybe other other sort of hormetic exposures um heat cold maybe fasting so then when when something becomes something that you rely on just a baseline continuously to function normally in your day right then i you then you then you have to have some some concerns right and right now I hear my wife being like, well, you can't function first thing in the morning unless you have a cup of coffee. So so maybe I'm being a bit of a hypocrite. But I think you have to think about how how is it fitting into your life more more broadly? And if it's something where, you know, without it continuously all day, you know, you see you, know, you don't function the way you want to function and or, it, you know, negatively affects your mood, which often you know, you're going into withdrawal. I think that it's worth thinking about whether that, is something that you truly want um you know is, is there some longer term benefit that you're willing to commit to by by changing that, that habit and 
If not, that's fine, right? Um, and like, like you said, people should do what absolutely they want to do in the moment and whatever makes them feel best. And I'm, I'm certainly in no position to judge. So it's just thinking about how is something working for you right now? And is that something that you want long term or not? Um, you know, why, why are you doing it? And, you know, sometimes if you really dig into why you're doing something, maybe some other alternative comes up, right? You're using something long, um, long term because of, you know, it helps you dissociate from certain negative feelings or your other aspects of, of mood, then maybe therapy or some kind of psychological input or something, you know, can help you work through that. You know, a lot of people are dealing with issues of long-term trauma and other things that they need professional help with. And that's not always the answer, but, but certainly c- could be something that in certain contexts can, can help with that, with that process. I compare like vaping to cigarettes. And again, I could put completely be missing this. So correct me if you think I'm just totally missing the boat, but I look at what vaping is to a cigarette, take out the smoking parks. I know smoking has its own set of negative benefits for obvious reasons. But I look at vaping to cigarettes as I would compare like vodka to beer because of how potent um, these vape pens are and their concentration of nicotine, where in a cigarette, there's not as, I I would imagine there's, there's not as much nicotine. I mean, do you think that if that, if this is the case, that that in itself could cause people to become very addicted to, to vaping? To be honest, I'm I'm not sure how much of that that plays a role because once you can access it, you can have as much of it as you want, right? So so people people are very sensitive to their their nicotine dose. You know, you go back thirty or forty years, people were people were chain smoking to get you know to get all the nicotine they wanted. So if you have access to if you have access to it, you can essentially administer whatever dose you want, and that's the same with alcoholic beverages. I I have no strong feelings about whether you drink beer or vodka, because you're probably going to control your intake based on the desired effects most of the time. So, so I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure how much that plays a role. Yeah. I guess I was just thinking of it from a, the, the view of an addict where I'm like, okay, like if I can, if I am doing a substance because it makes me feel good, makes me feel a certain way, whether it's this association, I'm checking out whatever. And I end up, you know, getting a bigger rush from not as much from this, then I'm like, well, I might as well just do that. And then if your brain is now used to getting, you know, uh, a massive amount of nicotine, now you're gonna have to do more and more to get that same, that same effect. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, but, but equally, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure that at least for you comparing those two, just like comparing beer to vodka and vaping to cigarettes, I'm just not sure that the, the, the delivery system is the real driving driving force there. To be honest, I don't know. But I just sort of subjectively it feels like that 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 might not be the the main thing. But maybe it is. So you talked about caffeine. And this is something that I think there has been research to show that there is been there is benefit to caffeine consumption. I also think there's a line where caffeine can negatively impact sleep, can, can negatively impact things like anxiety, stress. Talk about the the truth about caffeine. Like, what's a what's a healthy amount to use, and then where where can people get themselves in trouble if they're not careful? Most of the the research that suggests benefit 
from caffeine intake comes from research on tea and coffee. And in general, I'm not a big fan of epidemiological research where you ask somebody how much they consume of something and then you look at their long-term health outcomes. So that, I mean, that's how most nutrition epidemiology is done. And most of it is basically nonsense uh, because people are really bad at remembering and then either purposefully or not purposefully very bad at reporting what, you know, accurately what they've consumed and, and how much. I would say that I'm a little bit more certain about things like tea and coffee because those are so regularly consumed. Like, I know I drink two cups of coffee a day, right? And I have done for years. So I can reliably tell you that that's how much caffeine I consume. Whereas I couldn't tell you how many chicken breasts I eat a year, which which happens in some nutritional epidemiology studies. They're like, how many times did you have one tablespoon of cream in the past year? Literally zero clue. I can make up a number, but I'm, blah, I have no idea. So I think that people are more likely to remember their ca- the habitual ca- coffee and tea intake just because it is so habit related. So then when you look at, uh, say, coffee, but also uh, to some degree, tea intake and things like uh, neurogenic conditions like Alzheimer's disease, maybe Parkinson's disease, some uh, liver liver uh, conditions, there seems to be some net benefit in the kind of two to four or six cups a day. But like a cup is small, right? We're talking eight ounces. That's not how much coffee somebody normally drinks. Uh, so you're basically talking two or three cups of coffee a day, maybe. A lot of that benefit, or at least a reasonable chunk is thought to come from the polyphenols that come with that coffee or tea. Right. So it's not the caffeine itself. It's that there are other polyphenols that are beneficial and alkaloids and related compounds that do interesting things in the brain, in the gut, for vascular health that, that, that come with that. When you look at sort of energy drink consumption, right, how many monsters is associated with decreased dementia? Like there's there's no really good evidence to support that, probably because those things are a much more a recent invention. And other than coffee and tea, people weren't really consuming very highly caffeinated beverages until the last couple of, of decades or so. So what's what's the actual benefit from caffeine versus the benefit of the other things that are coming with caffeine in hot caffeinated beverages? Difficult to to really pass that out. But you can certainly say there's no there's no signal of harm with that amount of caffeine intake. And maybe, you know, you're getting some beneficial some benefit from it as well. There is probably an interaction with how fast you metabolize caffeine, which is related to um, uh, uh, enzymes in the liver and then also other enzymes in that pathway. So people who are, who are slow metabolizers, they may have a greater risk of negative um, effects at larger doses. But then not all of how we respond is directly related to genetics, because there are certainly some people who would be very fast caffeine metabolizers, but are still incredibly sensitive to caffeine. It does cause anxiety or stress and heart palpitations or increases blood pressure. So it's certainly a, a co- like how we respond seems to be very personal, but complex. For, for certain things, it, it is also benefic- beneficial acutely. So particularly for um, physical performance, caffeine seems to be, seems to be beneficial for, for, most, for most people. And again, there may be a, an interaction with genetics a little bit, but the, the studies haven't been really well done for me to be like confident in that. Where people get in trouble, first of all, you know, some people just can't tolerate caffeine intake at all. And or um, there's different related compounds that you get from tea, coffee, um, chocolate that have similar 
uh, effects uh, adenosine receptors in the brain, which is where they primarily act. But again, some people can get plenty from chocolate, but then you give them a cup of coffee and they'll be awake for three days. So there is some some, uh, personal response to that as well. Largely, I think there are two main potential downsides. One is where if you consume large amounts of caffeine, there is evidence that it can negatively affect certain complex cognitive functions like executive function, decision-making, things like that. Um, And then caffeine has a relatively long half-life, so it hangs around in the body for uh, for several hours after you consume it, and that's also partly genetically driven. But if you still have a lot of caffeine kicking around in your system when you go to sleep, it's going to negatively affect your sleep. So I think the biggest and commonest negative effect is in people who consume caffeine too late in the day and it negatively negatively affects their sleep. Yeah, that's probably the, the best summary I can quickly put together. I mean, obviously, I know you're not a psycho- psychologist or psychiatrist, but you hear a lot of people when they're feeling anxious and super stressed, one of the things that they will often do is cut out caffeine. I mean, do you think that that's a, a smart move? Potentially, particularly if they're consuming large quantities and it, and it it certainly can cause those feelings in, in some people. Some some benefit may also be derived from the placebo effect, right? If you if you think that you're anxious because you're consuming a lot of caffeine and that you'll get benefit from cutting out caffeine, I believe you will benefit. But some of that is driven by removing the caffeine and some of it is driven by the expectation of benefit. And that's that's good too, right? Anything that you can do um, that you think will positively benefit you and it does, like regardless of why that happens, you know, we, it's, it's often helpful to leverage those things. So do you think the same thing, you know, we, t- we talked about this a few minutes ago, this euphoric feeling that people get when they do a substance, we talked about how it happens with weed and people get the wrong idea about that. Caffeine, talked about vaping. In this context, I know personally that I'm like, all right, if I'm interviewing Tommy, I need caffeine to focus. Like I need caffeine to make me alert. But then I'm also hearing you say that it can have negative impacts on decision-making, executive function. I mean, so is my experience purely, you think, placebo or anecdotal in this and that, you know, I really should be paying attention to if it actually makes me like perform better? Yeah, the, this is all a complex to un- untangle, right? So, so when I say that caffeine can negatively affect certain aspects of cognitive function. Um, it can, when you're sleep deprived, help overcome some of the deficits in cognitive function that are generated by sleep disruption or sleep deprivation, right? So in that context, maybe it is beneficial. But it may be that particularly higher doses of, right, if you have several several cups of coffee in a, in a short period of time, for example, that you sort of push yourself over the, the optimal balance of, of focus uh, and you become hyper aroused. And that, that's associated with negative or decrease in complex cognitive function. So have you heard of the Yerkes Dodson arousal curve? So this is this is used quite a lot in in sports performance, or at least was historically. But it's actually based on a study in mice. But what they did is they had mice either do a complex task or a simple task. And before the task, this is a memorization task. Um, before the task, they they shocked the mice with a small electric shock to arouse them, right? To stimulate them, right? To kind of get them amped up. And we know that when you are more aroused, you are more likely to remember something, right? It's the same for humans. Um, This is why we preferentially encode traumatic experiences because we're like maximally aroused. We're releasing all these things, you know, cortisol, noradrenaline, you know, all these things that are really 
that actually help us cement memories. Um, so we know that arousal up to a certain point helps to, to, to stimulate encoding uh, of certain uh, skills or memories. And what they saw was that um, for a very simple task, basically there was no upper limit of, of uh, how much you could shock or like how much you could arouse the mouse and they would still perform the task. It wasn't that they kept getting better, but they sort of like leveled off. They got better and then it sort of leveled off at higher, at higher doses. For a complex task, uh, they see some benefit with a small amount of stimulation, a small amount of arousal, and then they see a decrease in, in performance with, with higher levels of arousal. And so it builds this idea that for any complex task, there is an optimal amount of arousal. And that's different from task to task. So when you use this in sport, you would say that if you want to be uh, the fastest possible 100-meter sprinter, your optimal arousal is really high right? You need to get out of those blocks, like almost before the gun goes off, right? That requires really high levels of arousal. If you want to shoot the, the best possible score in Olympic archery, you need much lower levels of arousal, right? So if you think about the gold medalists in, in, in the Olympics in the 100 meters sprint versus archery, the, the maximum amount of arousal that allows them to perform best is very different because if the archer was as amped up as the sprinter is, like they're never going to hit the target as well as they would if they were much less aroused. So this basically just comes to the idea that for any task, there is an optimal amount of arousal. And if you are overstimulated, say with large doses of caffeine, um, and actually there's some interesting, um, a re very recent study that came out on using um, other stimulants, and, and, and they show the same thing. So things like methylphenidate, which you might prescribe to a kid with ADHD, and they may see benefit in a person who doesn't have attention issues. If you give them these stimulants, these sort of ADHD meds like Ritalin, they think that they're performing better, but they're not, just like with caffeine. So again, there's this disconnect between subjective and objective performance. So how this all goes back to your question is essentially to say that for any given task, there is an optimal amount of arousal and using caffeine to increase that arousal can be beneficial depending on context in the individual. And so like the dose makes a difference. Other context makes a difference, right? If you're sleep deprived, then a little bit of more caffeine may get you into that window. Uh, but if you're not, or if some other things are going on, then it may push you out over the other side. I, I don't know of many people who would really objectively measure their function in the kind of tasks they do day to day, it's probably possible. So some of it requires like a, a little bit of navigation because uh, when you when you do these studies, often they're placebo controlled, right? In, in a research setting, so you take away the the expectation. Whereas if you want to really focus on a podcast, because you know I'm going to give you really long winded answers to your questions, like I am right now, you want to focus. And so if you expect that you'll focus better because you have a, a good cup of coffee before we record you will get some benefit just because of the expectation. And so that's why, you know, in, in the real world, not everything can be answered with this, with these sort of placebo controlled studies, because the actual outcome is also driven by our expectation, which just makes it more complicated. So if cognitive function and mental health, there's this correlation, like we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, and the goal for a lot of what we've been talking about, you know, throughout the course of our discussion so far has been using things to improve focus, cognitive function, um, the way we feel about ourselves, et cetera. 
do you think that the the biggest levers we can pull to in, in, induce that in a healthy way is is diet and exercise? So yes and no. Diet and exercise make up two of the very important things. Um, but then I would also include sleep and probably to some degree circadian rhythm and or ultradian rhythms, like when we when we individually perform best, uh, then how we use our brains or how we're stimulating those functions in our brains. Um, and then also some aspects of, um, say, social connection um, or stress tolerance or distress, to, um, you know, our, our ability to, to, to handle stresses when they do arise. Um, and so all of these things are grounded in lifestyle and the environment. So diet and exercise, very important. But when, when I think about specific cognitive functions i think the primary driving force is how we train those functions and how we use those functions in our brain just like saying right you want to be a, a an elite level power lifter you're not going to do that unless you spend a lot of time squatting benching and deadlifting right just like if you want to be a championship like memorizer right there are memory competitions you spend a lot of time practicing memorization and so that's, that's the case. That's the same for any cognitive function is you have to use those pathways frequently stimulate them uh, in order to, to actually get then the, the end output of increased function. So if what we want as humans is, is what you just described, we want to think cognitively, we want to have the highest level of executive function. We obviously want to all feel good about ourselves. And yet you just described what I think is pretty common knowledge for most people as far as how they can live like a, a good life, right? Is sleep, manage your stress, learn how to effectively do, uh, learn how to effectively manage stress, eat well, exercise, social connection. Like that's, I think that's been talked about for, for a long time now, yet people choose these other paths like we've kind of talked about in order to seek those things despite knowing what actually works. Like what do you... I know you've had your own ba- your your own battles with disordered relationships with 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 food and et cetera, and you've had your own experience with some of this. Given what you know, and then also your role as a researcher and a scientist, why do you think humans go down this wrong path despite knowing the other path is way to prosperity in life? Because the other path is hard. You know, the as I've spent at this point like two decades being really interested in in human health and performance. And like first it just started with me and then myself as an athlete and then other athletes that I worked with as a coach and then as a doctor and as I sort of built companies and started to do my own research. You're right. Nothing that I say should be particularly surprising to somebody who's listened to a handful of health podcasts, right? Because it's not. But the hard thing is beha- like behavior change is the, is the thing, is doing the things that you know are beneficial. There is some element of confusion, right? So you've talked about, right, you can go on social media and you can see all these people talking about the amazing benefits that they get from their nightly edibles, say, right? Or their nightly two glasses of wine. And then you have somebody else who's like, no, this is the worst possible thing you can do. You should never do it. It's terrible. You're right. So, so there is some of it is, is navigating the information because on any topic, you'll find information at both extremes when in reality, you know, there's three sides to every story. It's probably 
some combination of, of the two. There's a, there's, def- there's a middle ground. There's a story to take from both sides. So some of it's confusion or, or maybe a lack of information that's really relevant to that individual. But then the other side of it is just, it's hard, right? Um, developing a daily physical activity practice or a meditation practice if you want one or cooking all your own food, learning how to cook, knowing where to buy it and, and source it and, and having the time to do that, right? It's hard. That's the, that's the main thing is that humans are wired for short-term, like we've already talked about this, right? You're wired for short-term pleasure because in, in re- and the short-term benefit because we've never really, you know, maybe as a group we have, but sort of individually, we've, ne- we've never really had to plan long, long-term in the way that we do in our modern in our modern society. And so that's just not what we've uh, evolved to be really good at. So, you know, we'll often take in, you and I both do it um, still, um, even if we're not doing some of the things that we've done previously that, that we know maybe weren't the best, but we'll still take an easy, a shortcut or do the thing that feels good now, rather than something that's difficult, but, but maybe better for us in the long term. It is interesting, right? Because there's a lot of information out there that is creating confusion, specifically in the health and wellness space online that I know you and I have talked immensely about offline. And I think the one thing that often is overlooked is the importance and the challenge of building healthy habits and how hard that is. And that at the end of the day, doesn't matter what path you choose in life with regards to your health and wellness. If you can't develop habits that stick, nothing's going to matter. Would have been some things that have helped you personally develop some of these healthy habits that I'm sure you've had now for, for quite some time. I don't know whether it's like something that's really changed, but it's something that sort of subjectively you see. And if you read some of the literature and some, some books and people who research this, being a move away from people doing difficult things. And one of my favorite books on this is called The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, by Haight and Lukyankov. And what they talk about is that in college, in colleges in particular, and then also when kids are growing up, we try and protect them by not exposing them to difficult ideas or you know, uh, opinions that may go against what they, what they currently believe, right? And this is one of the reasons why we are increasingly politically divided, I think, is because we just don't get exposure to people who think differently from us. Like that's been built into the system in the last in the last few years or, de- or decades. But I think more broadly, that can be applied to, to everything else. So exercise like exercise is difficult. Cooking is difficult. Turning off the TV and going to bed at 9 p.m. is difficult. And so I think part of what's helped me is that for better or worse, I did a lot of things that were hard. And sometimes it was, I was overly restrictive of my food. And I was for a long time, I, I had what you would now call something like orthorexia. Um, I certainly didn't get to the point where you'd have to be hospitalized or need formal intervention, but I was definitely, I definitely did not have a good relationship with food. And so Part of it is just knowing, and I think this is where some of the recent interest in things like sauna and cold exposure and fasting and these these things, it's almost like we have to create discomfort because we haven't been good at that in the last couple of decades. 
So now people are realizing the benefit of doing difficult things. And so that's, that's, but, so that's a long way of saying that that's part of what I think has helped me is that I, I know I can do difficult things. And so then when you start to develop a, a new habit, first you have to make the time and space for it. And then you have to do it. And you're not always going to feel motivated, but commitment can help you do things even when you don't feel motivated. And then you get to a point where it's just, it's something that, that, that you do every day. And that dramatically simplifies the process, but things like you know, Atomic Habits or, or similar books, I think are great for people to try and develop new habits. But it has to be something that's going to be sustainable for you. So therefore, you have to be committed to it and know why you're committed to it. Like, why is this a thing you want to do? Like people who want to eat better or, exercise more because somebody told them they should, that's never going to stick, right? It has to be something that you're committed to doing and you have a reason for doing it. And then it's something that you can break down into small actionable chunks. And I think you should celebrate and realize that you're doing something difficult and you are, you know, you should tell yourself that you're doing a good job. Um, and often what? What we do instead is we think that there's all these things I should be doing and I'm not doing them and we just constantly beat ourselves up and that I think that's having a negative effect. So, you know, well, what's, what's the end answer? Do difficult things because then you know that you can do difficult things. I think that's really important and, and really underappreciated. And then, you know, focusing on one thing at a time that you're really committed to that, you, that has a benefit that you strongly want that you can approach in small bite-sized chunks and you know appreciate along the way rather than some like big lofty goal that's impossible to break down and you'll and you'll never actually achieve so that's that, that's kind of how i how i think about it shifting gears a little bit and, and talking about or habits that people have that they think are healthy but that are actually unhealthy i want to talk about alcohol because there's so so many people drink you know regularly whether it's a bottle of wine a night whether it's two glasses of, uh, or, or whether it's two drinks a night, four or five beers, whatever it is. And they're like, well, it's okay. Like it's legal. It's, I, could, I could be doing much worse or it's just what I do or whatever. What are your thoughts on alcohol? Is there truly a, a benefit to consuming any? I've gone back and forth on this and I've tried to read more and more because I get asked about this a lot, particularly in relation to cognitive function and, and dementia. Um, but then you also have to think about it more, more broadly. When you look at these large population studies, these sort of and and in general, there these nutritional epidemiology epidemiological studies. Like I said, so you have, you ask somebody how much they consume, and then they look at their you look at their long term health outcomes. Again, I think alcohol is probably something that you have a better idea how much you routinely consume compared to other aspects of your diet. So the data quality are probably a little bit better. So you can probably get something useful from it. In almost all of the studies that kind of look at a dose response on pretty much anything. Um, some cancers is not the case, but cardiovascular disease, uh, dementia, you know, um, a number of chronic conditions. You kind of zero drinks is kind of like your reference point, And then you start to see a decrease in risk with a small amount of consumption. And then it risk increases again with larger amounts of consumption. When you account for other healthy lifestyle behaviors, that benefit decreases, um, which basically means that People who drink small amounts of alcohol, but not none, tend to be healthier than people who drink no alcohol or people who drink lots of alcohol, right? So this, this is confound, it's confounding. 
even when you adjust for those things, and I, I don't think all studies do a great job of it, I think there's probably still what we call residual confounding, which means that there's still some signature of those people being healthier that's suggesting that some alcohol is beneficial uh, compared to none. However, you can almost certainly say that if you're drinking less than one drink a night, so the equivalent of around half a drink a day on average, those people have the best health outcomes. And some of it may be related to a small benefit from alcohol. But any more than that, you start to lose that benefit. So for most people who drink regularly, if there is benefit to alcohol, it's from probably a smaller dose than what they're currently drinking. And in general, I say something like one or two drinks once or twice a week is, is probably the sweet spot if you are going to regularly consume alcohol, because above that, um, you start to see uh, neg negative effects. So I'm still unsure if there is benefit. Some people think that alcohol is providing a hormetic stress. It's upregulating some enzymes and other things, like just like, just like exercise, right? It's, it's a short-term stress that results in, in long-term improvements in things like oxidative stress handling and stuff like that. So there's a possibility that alcohol is doing some of that, but the dose required to do that is, is, is not very much and is probably less than what most regular drinkers are consuming. Is red wine healthy? Uh, yes and no. Because there was, this, I mean, that's been this the, the old this old thing, right? That you know, red wine is okay to drink because it's quote unquote healthy. A lot of studies focus on this in different ways, and so one maybe to look at red wine consumption in Mediterranean countries that tend to have, you know, particularly in say the blue zones or like Sicily, where people have very live long and healthy lives, um, and other aspects of or other areas in France or Greece or Italy. They kind of, you know, these people regularly, you know, daily drink very small amounts of, of red wine. Um, and certainly, you know, the, their glasses are a lot smaller than like if you go to a bar and ask for a big glass of wine, which is a third of a bottle, which is a lot of wine. Um, so they're probably drinking less. Um, and they're probably doing a whole bunch of other things that are beneficial to their to their to their health. So it, so they might be in that in that kind of sweet spot where there is some benefit, but they're probably not drinking as much as an American or a British red wine drinker. Other things that are important are that people who drink red wine are very different from people who drink other things. Um, they tend to be more highly educated, have a highest, you know, have higher incomes. Uh, there is a whole bunch of other things that give them an advantage in terms of their long-term health outcomes. So I think that's where some bias does creep in. And then uh, finally, uh, where and I think where some of your your question comes from is, well, what are the other things? that are in red wine that may be coming along for a ride with the alcohol, like just like polyphenols come along for the ride with caffeine and coffee. There are lots of uh, polyphenols that come, right? Those are the things that make your red wine red that are potentially beneficial that, that, that come along for the ride with the alcohol. And there are lots of interesting health benefits of berry polyphenols. It's one of the reasons why I think like wild, those small wild blueberries, you can get them like in the freezer at the grocery store are one of the best things uh, to eat for the brain if you can, because they do a lot of interesting things. And, you know, worst case scenario, you just had some nice berries, right? So there are maybe some compounds that, that are in red wine that, that could be beneficial. But I think you can get those things from other foods without having to consume alcohol at the same time. Like you could probably get them from, from berries and eating some berries rather than drinking red wine. That's how I would approach it. Um, although occasional glass of red wine is, is probably just fine. Um, and then some of those compounds, 
that are in red wine have also been overhyped and have turned out to not really be the thing, right? So resveratrol is one where uh, I remember in undergrad, the, the, the original paper on uh, resveratrol, I think it was published in, in Nature, I presented it in a journal club and it was like, this is the, this is the thing. Um, although then I calculated how much Rioja, which has the highest quantity of, red, of resveratrol, I think, and all how much, and it's almost also in peanuts and peanut butter. And basically you'd have to drink like several gallons of red wine a day to get like a, a workable dose of resveratrol. So, so some of the things that we're told are beneficial in red wine probably aren't, but there, there may be some other compounds, but I, you could also get them elsewhere and not have to consume alcohol at the same time. I want to talk about healthy user bias a bit because I think I heard you reference in another podcast talking about like the blue zones is they they reference like the you know consumption of a little bit of alcohol I believe then you talk you just you just talked about that people who drink red wine they tend to have higher quality of life as far as circumstances they make more money they're they're higher highly uh, more highly educated etc. In some of this research, like how do we know that? some of the benefits that are coming from you know the the minimal i guess you could say alcohol use throughout the week is coming from the alcohol itself and not the fact that they are probably living a, a life that has less stress they're eating healthier they're moving more they have probably have better quality relationships like how do we know that it's the alcohol independent of those other things or we do we not know so so we don't and that's my main contention with this research <clears throat> um where people cite this stuff to say you know there's some benefit some longevity or dementia benefit from small amounts of alcohol. And I think there's probably still some residual health user bias, because even if you adjust for stuff statistically, like in part of my job, I'm a statistician for large clinical data sets, right? Data from humans is inherently messy. We don't know all the things we're measuring or we should be measuring or how they affect um, the outcomes we're interested in or how they interact and generally how they interact. We're not taking into account when, when we do these models. So my guess is that any benefit of small amounts of alcohol is less than what is reported because it's very difficult to account for all these other interacting beneficial factors that people who drink small amounts of alcohol have. But on the other side of that, I think you can also say there's no real signal of harm in that area, right? Because if you have a statistically significant benefit, even if that's still confounded by other healthy user bias factors that haven't been accounted for properly in those models. There's still no evidence of harm in that range. So, you know, maybe some benefit, but certainly up to, you know, one drink a night, maybe no, no real evidence of, of like true harm, whether or not the, the, the benefit is real. But if, if somebody's doubling that dose and they're having two glasses of wine every night or, you know, to fill in the blank, like, what do you think are some of the potential, like, risks in their in their mental health or their life in general that they're they they want to pay attention to? Yeah. So once you get to that dose, like, you've definitely crossed crossed the line where you start to. So if you imagine this imaginary line of like on the x-axis you have number of drinks a night, and on the y-axis you have your risk of disease, and you start at zero, it, the risk comes down a bit with a, a small amount of alcohol, and then the risk goes up with more. Once you get to like two plus drinks a day, then you're starting to see potential changes in brain structure, you know, uh, maybe cardiovascular disease risk, cancer risk, dementia risk. It's, it's in like a bit of a gray area, but certainly by two drinks a day in some studies that's, that's been associated with less brain volume. So you start to see 
um, decreases in the amount of brain you have in your skull, which is usually a bad thing. So I think somewhere around that cutoff of two drinks a night is where you start to see uh, risks risks increase. And so you also hear people say, um, and people have said this to me, like they're like, well, it's it's not negatively impacting my life. Like they're drinking the amount that you're we're talking about now, a couple of drinks every single night, more more on the weekends, but you know they're they're making money, they're supporting their family, their marriage is good, like the, all that they're checking all the boxes, right? Do you think that those types of people are just not susceptible to the negative side effects that you are alluding to, or do you think that they they're just not aware of it and it's going to catch up with them later in life? There's those two things plus plus potentially a third thing. So one is that they're probably already like quite healthy healthy and functioning well. So any small decrease in performance or whatever it is that may be associated with that level of drinking isn't really affecting them. And you know that's that's perfectly possible. Part of it is also that some of these health outcomes we're looking at, like they happen decades down the line. So, you know, you might be very happy with your drinking half a bottle of wine a night right now, and you're doing just fine, still, you know, getting paid, doing well in your job, like good relationship with your family, all that stuff. But that doesn't mean that you haven't increased your risk of something 20 years down the line, right? And again, that goes back to all the stuff we've talked about already, sort of short-term benefit for, and in exchange for long-term potential harm. and then. The last bit is probably thinking about well, how much of the how much of the potential negative effects are being offset by other things that this person is is doing, and you know, like like we mentioned, they may already be very healthy. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm particularly concerned about alcohol is because it can negatively impact sleep. But if they're not drinking right before bed, say it's early in the evening, they metabolize out most of the alcohol by the time they're going to sleep, and it's not negatively affecting their sleep, then they're probably going to be offsetting some of those negative effects. So particularly related to alcohol and sleep, which is one of the reasons why I think that higher doses of alcohol may, may be associated with worse long-term cognitive function is because of how it negatively affects sleep. So if you are managing to build this in while still getting benefit from all these other areas of your life, then it's very possible that at that kind of level, they're not seeing any negative effects. Because yeah, I've had clients over the years that have struggled with sleep, they'll have a couple of drinks at night you know, with dinner and, and then not too long before they go to bed. And I'll like say, like, hey, well, have you thought about like cutting out the alcohol? It might help you with sleep. And they're like, well, you know, it's a depressant. That's not what's bothering. It's not like it's keeping me up. I don't drink any caffeine. What is it about alcohol that impacts sleep? Well, there's there's a couple of things. So one really important aspect of proper uh, sleep initiation is changes in core body temperature. And alcohol tends to increase our our temperature. And it's one of the reasons why. Uh, some studies suggest that you sleep better if you don't eat right before bed because you know, when you eat, your metabolic rate increases and it doesn't allow your temperature to drop, which is part of sleep initiation. So one of it is it can mess with your temperature, but then it can also affect sleep architecture. So they may feel like they're falling asleep just fine, um, but they may not be getting the normal sleep cycles in, in the right order that they nor- that they would otherwise. So... So people often say, well, alcohol helps helps me sleep. And like I said earlier, it helps you become unconscious faster. But that's not necessarily the same thing as fostering the right environment for, for all the right stages of sleep to happen at the right time. Yeah, it's super interesting because this is one of the, I think this is probably the biggest substance that people will rationalize their use for, despite all these negative impacts that it can have on, pe- on people's health. Um, despite all the negative impacts it can have on your health, as we've kind of talked about, if you cross over that line from a cognitive standpoint, like 
what's the threshold you think like, i mean sometimes you'll hear people they'll they'll drink too much like man i don't even remember what i did yesterday or i don't even remember what i, what I had for dinner last night because they were drinking what does alcohol do to the brain that causes that alcohol primarily acts at uh gaba gaba receptors um so that's why it's a, a depressant in the brain because gaba is an, an inhibitory versus excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain and so that's where it primarily acts so we talked earlier about the yerkes dodson arousal curve right and historically in certain sports alcohol was used frequently so things like archery uh, snooker is the one like uh, i don't know not that many people in the us play snooker but uh, it's a very it's a very british uh, sport uh, it's like a massive pool table um, but in those kinds of sports these depressants actually improve f- function by decreasing arousal uh, you're, you're not allowed to do that anymore um, in most of those sports um, like certain types of performance alcohol may be in a small dose, acutely beneficial because it decreases arousal. However, you know, in general, at higher doses, it appears to be a neurotoxin. Uh, certainly, at very high doses, it's um, essentially completely in, in inhibiting. Well, I mean, it can just like render you unconscious, but it also can in, inhibit um, some of these processes of you know encoding encoding memories in the first place because you sort of shut down those processes by overacting um overacting gather uh, and and other related uh, pathways so um so yeah again it's the the dose makes the poison it depends on what you're trying to perform at whether it's beneficial or not but for most things alcohol is probably not improving cognitive function and if anything it's, it's probably the opposite what about from a social aspect you'll hear a lot of people say oh i, I like to do it because it's you know i'm out with my friends it's something that i'm doing socially do you think that socializing with friends offsets the negative benefits or do you still think somebody's better off socializing without you know drinking a bunch of alcohol that's uh, well you said a bunch so well, drink without drinking a fair amount of i mean because when people yeah. go out it's they're not just having a drink it's like you know yeah. typically they're going out for a few hours and it's a couple of drinks um so say when i go out with friends in that context i will have one maybe two and that happens you know, every few weeks or so. Um, but you're right. That's probably not what most people do. So I do think that the social, the benefit of social interaction probably offsets some of those potential negative effects of alcohol. That's pro- very likely. We know there's a whole number of benefits of social interaction that affect our long-term health. Um, and if alcohol is required to facilitate that, then, you know, there may be a, some some balance of benefit there. Having said that, I know plenty of people who, you know, I think a lot of it is societally driven. And I know that, like, historically, I always thought that if I wanted to go out and talk to people and dance or whatever in a club, I'm going to have to have several drinks to be disinhibited enough to get to that point. But there are, you know, we all know people who don't do that for health reasons or religious reasons, and they manage to do all those things just fine. So I think some of it is what we think we need versus what we actually need. Um, but yeah, um, if it's helping to facilitate social interaction, there's, there's probably, um, some, 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 uh, beneficial trade-off there. The flip side of that is one of the biggest roadblocks I've heard from people as far as, um, from what keeps them from quitting drinking is they're afraid of what their their friends will say when they go out. So it's super interesting 
how this all interacts. I mean, it's the biggest thing they'll say is they'll say, you know what, what am I going to say to my friends when they're drinking and I don't want one or I'm not going to have one? Like, how do I deal with that? And so I do think it's a slippery slope in that you have to have this strong foundation built where you're working on your health, your wellness, your confidence, your sleep, your stress, so that you can present yourself in the best way possible and and, and using you know, some of the, you know, and using what, if if you're choosing to have a drink when you go out with your friends, using that as an extension of your lifestyle and not because you want to please the people around you. And and that's, that's really important. And there's, there's certainly a balance there. Like if certain groups or activities are for whatever reason, driving you to do more of an activity that you want to do less of not doing those activities or not spending as much time in those groups is probably, is probably going to help facilitate that change that you want to make but equally i i've certainly know lots of people who've become because they've been so hyper focused on doing everything quote unquote perfectly exercise sleep diet all this kind of stuff that they've essentially completely socially isolated themselves because they don't want to go out to eat in case you know they don't want to eat a certain way or it might interfere with their training the next day or something like that so i think that there's definitely a trade-off there and i would not you know, there's there's harm from going all the way, like isolating yourself so that you can only do these perfectly healthy behaviors. Because then I think that the negative effect of that social isolation is probably greater than occasion, you know, the, the downsides of having a beer occasionally or a pizza occasionally. Um, so there's, there is an important there is an important trade off there. Uh, but equally, I think there is a big push now for less alcohol consumption. And certainly like younger generations are drinking less than older generations and if i go to a cocktail bar or a, or a bar i can get a non-alcoholic ipa i can get a non-alcoholic cocktail and, and i do that frequently so you get you get all the other stuff that's associated with that you get the environment you get the people you're with you can cheers them you can you know have an enjoyable beverage but that doesn't have to come with alcohol if you don't want it to so i think that there's a lot more options now to facilitate that same social environment without having to consume as much alcohol, which I think is great. Yeah. And the orthorexia thing is a thing, right? Because I remember like, it was like the one thing that I wanted in my life was to be happy and to be healthy and to have all the friends and to attract certain people into my life. And I thought the way that the way to do that was to look a certain way and then seek perfection in my health, in my health and wellness journey. I found myself doing the very thing that you referenced. I'm like, hiding, you know, in my chin, not going out, eating chicken and broccoli. I'm traveling on on planes with frozen chicken and broccoli because I was afraid of eating something unhealthy. And my my social circle became very, very small, very, very fast. And I began to isolate. And I was just as miserable as I was as a drug addict because I didn't have anybody I was associating with. The thing that I thought would give me the greatest joy and happiness in my life didn't like the way that I looked and vanity and stuff like that. And so, yeah, it's definitely a, I mean, I hate to use this word because it's like, nobody does this, but it's definitely a balance, right? And you have to have to figure it out. I feel like we're either all in or all out, but I also think it's important to have conversations like this where we're just openly discussing, you know, some of the the facts and just even your objective opinion on a lot of these things, because I think it's important for people to understand that there's a lot of information out there on health and wellness, a lot of information out there about some of the things that we've discussed. And I really do think that people now need to do due diligence on these things so that they can craft 
a, a lifestyle that they truly want that actually feels in line with them. Because otherwise, you're going to go online, you're going to be confused. You're going to see somebody say red wine is beneficial. And you hear somebody else say, well, alcohol is going to destroy your brain. And you'll see somebody say that exercise is good. And another person will say, you know, like you should just, you know, stick to red light therapy and that'll fix all your problems. And it's just, it's tough out there. So I do think it's important for people to, to, to listen to things like this. If there's any main takeaway, I think it's just figuring out what is it that you want and and what is it that you're willing to to commit to for some certain outcome. And after that, um, I, I'm very much in favor of like control the things that you're either willing or able to control, and then as much as you can, just not worrying about the rest. Um, and like zero judgment. All the things that we've talked about today, I've done. And, you know, you sort of have to, so there's, it's not, um, there's, there's no like value judgment on any of it. It's just figuring out what is it that, that makes sense for you and supports your long-term goals and thinking about long-term goals and what you're willing to commit to um, in the short term to, to, to make new habits or break um, old habits. Um, and yeah, just arm yourself with the information and then figure out what's, what's right for you. Because in reality, most of it is gray area. Another part of it is you take the pleasure out of these things when you only consider them in terms of their health benefits or health detriments, right? So potential benefit of sitting with a friend and talking over a glass of red wine, right? Yeah, maybe there's some benefit from the red wine. There's a lot of benefit from the social interaction. But then like overanalyzing it being like, well, I should drink half a glass of red wine a night because that's going to give me the optimal health outcome, right? Like you, you're missing the point there, I think. We sort of when we objectify these things in this way, um, we miss out on the joy of it. And that's the same for sleep and social interaction and alcohol and food, um, right? If you're analyzing every macro that goes in your mouth because you think that's going to give you some some goal, you miss the joy in food, which should be joyful most of the time um, and shared with others. So so yeah, that's, that's how I would kind of try and navigate that as, as, a, as an individual. Well, Tommy, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for uh, sharing all of your wisdom, your insights on these subjects. I know they're not easy to talk about. And I know given that in a lot of this, you're not necessarily in a quote unquote, like the, like a leading like expert, but you do know the brain, you understand cognitive science and understand, you know, how a lot of these substances can interact with the brain. So I greatly appreciate you coming on here and, and sharing everything. It was, uh, yeah, fun to chat. Not some of these things, things I don't really talk about uh, for for that for that reason, but certainly um, very happy to share my thoughts and and really appreciated the uh, the invite to come and to come and hang out and talk about those those things. You got it, man. Well, thanks again for coming on. I think the audience is really going to get a lot of value out of this conversation.